Welcome to Longitude Soundbites, where we bring innovative insights from around the world directly to you. Hi, I'm Ali Cosmos, Longitude Fellow from Rice University Architecture. We're exploring the approaches of individuals to contemplation, experimentation, and communication in scientific and creative fields. For this episode, I had an opportunity to speak with Scott Pfeiffer. Scott Pfeiffer is an acoustics architect and one of the nation's leading figures in acoustics. He was an acoustic consultant and collaborated with the architect in the design of the theater and orchestra pit of the Brockman Hall of Opera. Join me as I engage in conversation about what acoustic work entails in architecture and the unique journey Scott took in this field. Enjoy listening. How much of the process are you consulting on this has to be this way? Yeah. And are you yeah. trying to minimize that so that the architect and the client has more freedom? I, I think I would answer by saying two things. One is all of us, all of the risk taking and the creation of a new idea and the following of the of the client's ultimate desire for the outcome requires an enormous series of collaboration an overused word, but we have a series of things to solve for us. The structural engineer has some work to do, the mechanical engineer, you know, and we all have a budget and the architect has work to do. So under the best of circumstances, we identify ways that we can take those risks together, that a new structural idea could enable a new acoustic idea that could enable the outcome to be more successful. So our goal is not to prescribe what must be, but instead to inform the team as best we can with all the tools, not leading with a stick to say, don't do that, but to say, here's what we're trying to accomplish. In order to accomplish that, we need a surface in here, you know, wherever this is. And we need that to be massive. And we need it to be shaped in a certain way or within a range of, of texture that is available to you. And if we do that really well, we may get to the point that the architect says, ah, but, you know, to solve exiting, I need this other thing. So we have to push and pull a little bit and that's fine. And the structural engineer says, well, I can, you know, I can help you with that because you know, I don't need very thick structure here. I need it up there or whatever those series of options are. And if we do our job well, we give over the understanding of what we're trying to accomplish, not the thing that we want, but the why of what we want, so that they can use that to come back to us with an idea that we would not have thought of. And that is, that's where this work is super exciting, that we're creating something that none of us would have created by ourselves. What's the variety of clients and types of projects that you work with? And then, do you do any studies on the effects on people? We work on quite a wide variety of projects, although... The bulk of our work is in cultural buildings. They hire us for the auditorium, but we take that opportunity to make sure that they're thinking about the acoustics of all the spaces that are under the roof, um, or, or even those that are outside, so that we're having an impact, yeah. Um, um, with each new relationship, with each new architectural relationship or um, design team, we look for the opportunities to visit with them outside of the, the progress of the project, and talk with them about thinking about sound as an influence in all of their design, whether or not we are on the project or not. 
We do some research and development work at our office, but we're staying in touch with the scientists and the researchers, so it keeps us abreast of what people are learning about the effect of noise and uncomfortable sound on the brain. And does new information pop up all the time? It, it does, actually. I mean, there's another organization we're part of that is the Academy for Neuroscience and Architecture. And while they have focused on a lot of the impacts of the environment you're in, there has not been a deep focus on sound as a part of that. It's mostly been visual because of architecture is sometimes yeah. more visual than acoustic. Yeah. yeah. And so by participating in that conference, we've been in a position to help, I think, influence the, the direction of that conversation and, and include noise and sound uh, and essentially the soundscape that you can really weave in the idea of a soundscape into your building so that you intentionally create a little bit of noise where you want it to reduce the amount of awareness of, of other activity, like in an open plan office area, or the kind of noise that might be welcome, like, like fountains or natural sounds that can sometimes help to drown out the non-natural sounds that are in the immediate environment. So by replacing traffic noise with a little bit of a fountain, you find a more calming space. You got into acoustics right around your senior uh, year of college. You know, I actually I actually learned about the existence of the field before I went to college. Um, and I did not find a direct program in acoustics, so I ended up studying physics and music. So I was able to, to take more classes in, in multiple places without overloading my schedule. That's incredible. I, yeah. So even in high school, you yeah. had a very good understanding of what you want. <laughs> so I, I was always into music, and I was a performer. Um, I performed in all the musicals in my high school. And was it vocal performance? Vocal performance, yeah. I, was a, a, I am a baritone. And I was pretty good. I mean, I did, did all right, um, but I came from a small town. Um, and so I figured out pretty early on when I went off to you know, the district choral competitions and the other kinds of things where you see yourself against a broader range of the world and you say, oh, well, I'm not going to make my living as a singer, you know, um, so, uh, but I was also a pretty good scientist. And so I thought, how can I keep my involvement in music, but use my skills in science? And um, I was working as a stereo salesman at a catalog showroom, you know, one of those places where the uh, warehouse is upstairs and you pick out the thing yeah. you want and it comes down a belt and you, you know, take it with you. Um, so we had a listening room and, and you know, I was learning, reading about the products I was selling and, and learning about the acoustics of loudspeakers and, uh, and the digital signal processing tools that were in electronics. And I thought that was the path I would be heading for, you know, either becoming a loudspeaker designer or, a, or an electronics, uh, music electronics um, designer. Right around that time, Yale did a profile on Russell Johnson who was the founder of Artec Consultants in New York. And Artec did the work that I do now. They worked on concert halls. And um, so it was through that introduction from Yale Magazine and this alumni story that I learned that this field even existed. And once I knew it existed, I felt like this is what I need to do. So Acoustics does feel like in the background, but mm. over the years, you've probably developed an ear where you're, when you're walking through the space, you're yeah. more attuned to the changes in acoustics. So did you have 
a shift maybe as you slowly further got into it where you sort of discover a new world in like another dimension when you're walking through spaces mm. yeah. yeah you can't I mean it gets to a point where you can't turn it off if you, <laughs> if you wanted to part of it is that you you know acoustics and listening um, you know we don't have a good memory for what we hear just like we don't really have a good memory for taste or smell and the way we get around that is you develop language to, to describe what you experience. There was a linguistics um, class I had 30 more or more years ago um, where they discussed the idea called the Warfian hypothesis. And that was that you weren't able to, to own an idea or a concept until you had the language to support it. And I feel like the in wine tasting, in coffee connoisseur tasting and, and in, in these other areas, we come up with the language so that we can experience something, describe it in the moment, and then use that description to compare it to the next time. You don't really remember the taste, but you remember you've, you've categorized and assigned that so experience into words that you have developed a really keen sense for. So when people say, you must have a great ear, it's not really about the quality of the apparatus on the side of my head, but it's about the practice, yeah, of turning that into language and, and, and being able to listen for something in particular and categorize that and, and hold on to it to be able to compare it to the next experience. So your understanding of a word mm -hmm. develops over time as well. Yeah. It does. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one thing that was interesting to me, perfect acoustics. Yeah versus good acoustics. What are some of the notable examples that you've experienced? Yeah. Personally, you were inside of it and you just realized there was something different but it made it really unique? You know, I would say um, one of the times that I had that experience where I felt that I was in a very, very special place was just a very tiny stone church in Denmark. I studied in Denmark for my uh, graduate program. Uh, I was out for a bike ride because that's what you do in Denmark and um, came upon a small stone chapel that was open and so I just wandered in and it was one of the few times um, when I felt the experience of support of my own sound, of speaking or singing in an empty room that you know, nobody else was there that came from the fact that the walls were five feet thick and it was you know a, a stone structure with plaster directly on the stone so it was very very massive yes yeah and so we make the argument in, in acoustic design and important it is to make heavy structures to support low frequency sound but we're typically arguing about you know extra layers of drywall so not, let's make it two or four layers of drywall instead of one, or, or let's use real plaster, you know, which is something that is harder to get these days. But, you know, an inch of plaster has a fair amount of mass compared to a normal drywall partition. And so we, we are talking about that. But in this case, we're talking about feet of stone and plaster. And so the, the delta in, in the stiffness of that surface is so much greater than anything that we might build in modern construction. That if you can fully support low frequency um, in the way that a room like that does, 
you can really change the experience for the people who create sound there, whether it's a performer or otherwise. So in terms of rock off, what was the strategy? So the the drum of the opera house, the, the walls that form the, the horseshoe shape of the room itself, are grout filled masonry. Um, okay. So it's it's quite heavy. Uh, it goes from 12 inches low in the room down to 10 as you get higher. Um, and then, you know, at me or 10 inches thick, that's a pretty massive, heavy wall. And and then the plaster is directly applied to the inside of the masonry. So so the, the walls themselves are quite massive. And, and for that purpose, we want to support the... The base as as readily as we support the soprano, and without that kind of mass, you can favor one over the other, and that's potentially a little problematic. Um, the bases have the hardest work to do to be heard in that way. Um, sopranos have it's not favorable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It's not favorable. No, right. Exactly. <laughs> so if you support the bases, then you take care of the sopranos as well. So that's good. But but yeah, so that works really well, and then. You know, as you move into the room, the ceiling is a bit lighter, of course, so you have to support it, um, but it's still relatively massive. But by the time you get to the balcony face, that surface is quite small, and so it doesn't have the ability to reflect low frequency anymore because the wavelengths of sound are, are quite long at, at the lower end, so it, it's not a contender for being able to, to support that low frequency. So it's okay to let that get a bit lighter. Are you an opera enthusiast? I am. Yeah, uh, you know, part of my music education was you know studying voice and and learning opera arias and things. Um, so yeah, I've learned a lot about it along the way, and I do enjoy uh, I enjoy it as an art form. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. Your studies did lead you to Denmark. They did. Um, yeah. Was it something specific that led you to Denmark, or was it Denmark was a leading time for acoustics? Yeah, they are. I mean. Scandinavian countries in general, a lot of acoustics research comes from the laboratories there. Is there a reason? Or? I believe just that it's government-supported, um, and they have uh, a tradition of it, and so it continues. Part of the undergraduate program I was in um, was to do a thesis, an undergraduate thesis. And so I took my physics education and my music education, and I put it together to make a... Um, project that was a two-semester project, um, kind of like a capstone that you would do in architecture. And my the subject was I studied the, the performance halls that were on the campus at Moravian College where I was at school. And a lot of the research that I was finding to use to help inform that study came from the school in Denmark. And so when I completed the work, submitted the project and the thesis, I was looking to thank all of the people who helped me. And among those that helped were some of the faculty in Denmark whose papers I had downloaded or found. I say downloaded. They weren't available electronically back then. I had to go to the library and get them and print them out. But anyway. Were, we, were they in the form of books? Or they, they were um, typically research papers published in, in uh, the Acoustical Society of America publication or the Journal of the Acoustical Society or other, the European Acoustical Society. Some of the papers were clearly very applicable to what I was trying to accomplish and were only available in Danish. And so I wrote to the professors and I said, hey, do you happen to have an English translation? I don't know how to speak Danish. And 
so they were very kind and supportive, and they got copies of the papers to me in, in English, and, and so I corresponded with them through the year. And I, as I finished the project and was just sending out thank you notes, because um, that's what I was taught to do, um, I wrote to the faculty there, and I, I thought, well, what's, what can I say? What do I have to offer them besides my gratitude? I thought, well, I'm a student, so if I said, thank you for all your help, I'd really love to study with you based on what I've learned from reading these papers. However, of course, I don't speak Danish, and you know, but it, so it was really just a way of complimenting them. And you know, I didn't actually think I would go study in Denmark, and they responded to my thank you note and said, "Well, we have courses in English, and we have a guest student program, and here's how you apply, and so come on over." And so I did, and so that's how I ended up in Denmark. But it was it was the combination of the fact that there was a lot of research available from there, and then the connection that made the process. We hope you enjoyed our episode. What stood out to me from this conversation was that in the creation of an architectural work, what is most important is to understand why something is demanded or required. If the why is accurately understood, then the parties involved can better participate in a collaborative effort that results in a design that could not have been imagined in the initial conversations. To view the episode transcript, please visit longitude.site. If you're a college student interested in leading a conversation like this, visit our website longitude.site to submit an interest form or to write to us at podcast at longitude.site. Join us next time for more unique insights on longitude soundbites.